There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free this is holly fry from stuff you missed in history class the national sales event is on at your toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new suv like an adventure ready rav4 available with all-wheel drive your new rav4 is built for performance on any terrain or check out a stylish and comfortable highlander with seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com toyota Let's go places. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Nine Days in July is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios in association with High Five Content. It's May 6th, 1968, Ellington Air Force Base, Texas. Neil Armstrong is sitting behind the controls of the Lunar Landing Research Vehicle. This isn't a simulator like the building bound trainers I described last episode. This one actually flies. The LLRV employs a massive downward-facing turbojet engine to counteract five-sixths of the vehicle's weight and better simulate how the lunar module will behave on the moon. Two rockets and 16 smaller thrusters provide vertical and horizontal motion and allow for fine movements. The LLRV isn't pretty. It's basically a flat square body, four legs in each corner, and an open cockpit. The astronauts call it the flying bedstead. According to those who've taken the stick, It is notoriously hard to fly, but profoundly easy to crash. On this day, several hundred feet in the air, Neil is struggling with the controls as he tries to bring the machine in for a landing. Suddenly, the rockets give out, and the LLRV begins to plummet. Neil increases power to the turbojet, but as he does, the vehicle makes an uncommanded pitch forward. 200 feet above the ground, Neil hits the eject button. His body is instantly accelerated to 14 Gs. He's so low that his parachute is open for only four seconds before he crashes back to the Earth. Across the field from him, the LLRV dives into the ground and erupts in a giant fireball. If he'd waited even a second longer, he'd still have been strapped into the seat when it exploded. More than any other piece of equipment NASA had, the LLRV was the best analog for what it would be like when Neil took the LEM's controls and guided it to the lunar surface. As he rises shakily to his feet, watching the LLRV burn, how could he not be wondering if this is the fate that awaits him and Buzz? There are no ejection seats in the LEM. It's July 20th, 1969, day five of the Apollo 11 mission. This is the day humans can make history by stepping foot on another world. 
This is Apollo Control, 93 hours, 29 minutes, ground elapsed time. Apollo 11, good morning from the block team. Good morning, you guys wake up early. <laughs> yeah, it looks like you're really uh, sawing them away. You're right. After having breakfast and getting all squared away after the night's rest period, the crew will have a rather busy day today, including the first manned landing on the moon. A busy day indeed. Yesterday, four days after they left Earth, the conjoined command service module and the lunar module arrived in orbit around the moon. Today, Mission Commander Neil Armstrong and Lunar Module Pilot Buzz Aldrin will attempt to make history by landing a spacecraft on the moon and setting boot prints in its ash-like surface. Members of the white team of flight controllers headed up by Eugene Krantz are drifting into the control room now to relieve the night watch. One of those white team members is Guidance Officer Steve Bales, who you might remember from a previous episode. You could have cut the tension in that room that day with a knife. Some of the managers had been in the business 30 years, said they had never seen the tension that they had felt in that room that day. But you also get this feeling that this is a place something's going to happen at. I mean, this is a place sort of like the docks where Columbus left, you know, when he sailed off to America. For Gene Krantz, it's only just now beginning to sink in that today is the day they've been working toward for the better part of a decade. He's wearing his wife's good luck charm, a silver and white vest. She makes a new one for each of her husband's missions. But today's is especially beautiful. Elsewhere in Houston, the astronauts' families are just arriving home after a morning spent at church. Each of their homes are surrounded by ravenous press. It isn't long before a small army of friends and family, most bearing potluck dishes, begin showing up to offer moral support. Inside, TVs and coffee pots are already hard at work. It's going to be a long day. In the corner of each living room is a squawk box, which NASA installed shortly before Apollo 11 launched into space. The devices allow the families to listen in on the communications between mission control and the spacecraft, basically what you've been hearing throughout this podcast. Joan Aldrin finds a spot on the couch and lights a cigarette. The nearby ashtray is already in desperate need of being emptied. Chain smoking is an unfortunate side effect of being an astronaut's wife. Back aboard Apollo 11, the crew has donned their bulky pressure garments, and Neil and Buzz have powered up the lunar module. The time has come to separate the two spacecraft. Michael seals the hatches and begins depressurizing the airlock. He is now alone in the command module. Neil and Buzz prepare to deploy the lunar module's four landing legs, which, until now, have been tucked tight against the spacecraft's ungainly body. Okay, we're going to put our gear down. Landing gear, deploy fire. Here we go, Mike. Bam, it's out. Ain't no doubt about that. Inside the LEM, Neil and Buzz conduct a series of checks, confirming their guidance system, thrusters, descent propulsion system, and rendezvous radar are all working properly. That last bit sounds innocuous, but it's not. Remember the rendezvous radar. Apollo 11, Houston, we are go for undocking, over. Roger, understand. As Apollo 11 curls around the far side of the moon, it once again loses radio contact with Houston. As will happen so often on this mission, massive and critical maneuvers are conducted without the comforting tether of mission control. You can't take it easy on the lunar table, right here. You're off of this bump and I'm going to start pitching at you. Okay, Mike. Okay, I'm going to start a uh, maneuver now to uh, our undocking attitude. When you're rendezvous radar, 
There it is again, rendezvous radar. On Buzz's checklist is a command to make sure the radar is picking up a transponder on board the command module. This tells the LEM where and how far away it is. Without the transponder, it will be almost impossible to find Michael in the command module once they leave the moon. The two spacecraft separate. Michael has to ensure that he undocks without damaging the seals on either module. If the docking ports are damaged, Neil and Buzz will have to perform a spacewalk tomorrow to get back in. But this is Michael we're talking about, and he makes it look easy. There is no more Apollo 11. The Eagle and the Columbia are now two separate spacecraft orbiting the moon. Michael allows Columbia to drift a short distance away from the lunar module and takes the opportunity to inspect the Eagle's exterior and to ensure the landing gear is properly deployed. Yeah, looking good. Mesa still up? Yeah. The Mesa is a compartment on the belly of the Eagle's descent stage that holds the various equipment and tools the crew will need once they land. A moment later, the two spacecraft round the moon and come back into contact with mission control. Roger, Eagle, sun Roger, how does it look? Eagle has wings. You got a fine looking flying machine there, Eagle, despite the fact you're upside down. Somebody's upside down. In space, there is no upside down. Michael fires Columbia's thrusters and moves himself away, ensuring the Eagle is free and clear to navigate. The LEM initiates its descent orbit insertion burn. This is not the big burn that's going to get the Eagle down to the moon, but rather a short one to lower them down to about 50,000 feet in preparation for their final descent. Every second of the burn removes nearly two miles from their altitude. From orbit, Michael watches the Eagle getting smaller and smaller until it disappears from view altogether. Once again, the maneuver occurs out of radio contact with Houston. Back in mission control, Gene Kranz lights a new cigarette. He can't even count how many he's already had this morning. He's been writing furiously in his logbook and notices that the pages are wet and beginning to curl. He's sweating. A lot. But at his console, Steve Bales suddenly has nothing to do. And we had about 15 minutes to acquisition. And Gene says, I want you flight controllers to go to this special loop that was private. I had to tell these kids how proud I was of the work that they had done and from this day, from the time that they were born, they were destined to be here. And they're destined to do this job. And it's the best team that has ever been assembled. And today, without a doubt, we are going to write in the history books and we are going to be the team that takes an American to the moon. And you do not know how much that meant for somebody like myself, uh, sitting there at 26, with no uh, knowing what we were going to have to do in the next few minutes. His pep talk concluded. Gene has the doors to mission control locked. No one can go in or out. It's go time. We should have cut off by this time. That should have completed the descent orbit insertion maneuver. The spacecraft is now behind the moon, and the control team, uh, the adrenaline, I mean, just really was, no matter how you tried to hide it, the fact is, is that you were really starting to pump. This is Apollo Control at 101 hours, 54 minutes. I believe back in the viewing room, we probably have one of the largest assemblages of 
space officials that we've ever seen in one place. Mission Control is bursting at the seams with dignitaries and VIPs. Basically, anyone who's anyone at NASA is here. It's grown quite quiet here in Mission Control. A few moments ago, Flight Director Gene Kranz requested that everyone sit down, get prepared for events that are coming, and he closed with the remark, good luck to all of you. We are now coming up on 30 seconds to acquisition of the command module. Well, we do get acquisition, but it is the most horrible sounding noise that you've ever heard. Here we're getting ready to go to the moon and we can't even talk to the crew directly. Uh, we have to call Mike Collins in the uh, command module to relay data down into the lunar module. Eagle Houston, if you rate your go for power descent, over. As you can hear, the comms are terrible, but that isn't stopping Buzz from grinning ear to ear. Five seconds after the engine ignites, Steve Bales once again loses all data from the moonship. When it comes back a minute or so later, he sees something's not right. We were going toward the moon 20 feet per second faster than we should have been. If we get to 35 feet per second, I've got to stop the descent. I've got to call the board. Well, boy, when you haven't even started down to the moon and some guy comes to you and says, hey, we're halfway to our abort limit, it sure gets your attention. So why was the LEM flying so much faster than anyone anticipated? Gene explains. The crew had not fully depressed the tunnel between the two spacecrafts. So when they blew the bolt, there was a little residual air in there, which sort of like popping a cork on a bottle. But of course, no one knows this at the time. All they know is that for some reason, the spacecraft is traveling faster than it should be. Either that or something's wrong with the navigational computer. Either way, the tension in mission control has now reached suffocating levels. Luckily, the comms seem to be back. Our position check down range to us to be a little off. Neil has just recognized what Steve Bales and everyone in mission control already knows. The LEM is not where it's supposed to be. Neil is watching the terrain go by outside his window, and he realizes they are going to overshoot their landing zone. Neil rotates the LEM into a face-up, feet-forward position. This must be done so that when the eagle is put upright, they will be facing forward during the landing. Now he and Buzz are looking at nothing but the void of outer space. Well, not quite nothing. Back in mission control, Steve Bales continues to monitor the LEM's progress. Thankfully, the Mooncraft has not gained any additional speed. That abort danger that everyone feared no longer seems to be an issue. And I think my big problem for today is over. 20 seconds later, we get a program alarm. Program alarm. 1202. 1202. And I was frantically scrambling. I said, oh my gosh, it's one of those alarms we worked on. I have the cheat sheet over on my left side, but before I can even see it, Jack Garman is yelling in my ear, Steve, Steve, remember, it's executive overflow. Give us a reading on the 1202 program alarm. Neil and Buzz don't recognize the alarm, and they are too busy to go rummaging through their manuals looking for an explanation. Communication dropouts were a nuisance more than a, a, a danger, but uh, a computer problem was a showstopper. Uh, I didn't really know the consequences of those alarms. But fortunately, Steve and those guys on the GNN uh, console knew. I say to the flight director, we're going that alarm. Roger, we got you. We're going that alarm. Roger. 
Do you recall the story from our last episode that I told you to remember? The final simulation that Mission Control went through? The one that would never happen in real life? The one that made Gene Krantz so angry? Well, this is real life, and the exact same thing is happening right now. Except this time, Mission Control knows exactly what's going on, and they all remember what they were told after the simulation. You should not have aborted. Some person, and we've never been able to identify it in the voice loop, comes up and says, this is just like a simulation. The Eagle's computer is overloaded with tasks. It cannot process them all. The alarm is its way of saying, hey, everybody, I've got a lot more on my plate than I can handle, so I'm going to concentrate on the most critical items and leave the rest for later. For 1969, the LEMS computer is as cutting edge as it gets. It has 2K of RAM and 36K of ROM memory. If you're not a computer person like me, those numbers likely don't mean anything to you. So let me break it down for you. The last email you sent was likely twice as large as that. The LEM computer had less memory than a high school graphing calculator. And yet it got us to the moon. NASA was the first in the world to use microchips, allowing them to power a computer the size of a briefcase rather than a machine the size of a room. The moon landing didn't usher in the space age, it ushered in the digital age. And just what is it that's causing the data overflow? You've probably figured it out by now. The rendezvous radar. Buzz left it on just in case they needed to abort and make a quick ascent back to Michael in the command module. It proved one item too many for the computer to handle. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs starting on March 13th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, all flight controllers hang tight. Should be throttling down pretty shortly. Okay, 5,100 feet per second is good. Attitude control is good. Eagle, you're looking great. Neil pitches the Eagle up so that the vehicle is now traveling with its legs pointed down toward the moon. They are over unfamiliar territory, on the southwestern edge of the Sea of Tranquility, more than four miles beyond their target. Below them is a deep crater the size of a football field, and it is strewn with massive boulders. Realizing that the autopilot is going to try to land the spacecraft in the middle of that crater, Neil disengages the computer and takes control himself. He needs to find a new landing site. 
his heartbeat has skyrocketed from 77 beats a minute to 156. Okay, all flight controllers, gonna go for landing. Retro, go, Ido, go, guidance, go, control, go, Telcom, go, GNC, go, Ecom, go, Surgeon, go, Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're go for landing, over. Roger, understand, go for landing, 3,000 feet. Another alarm. This time, 1201. It's in the same series as the one before, and Steve Bales doesn't even hesitate this time. Okay, we're go. We're go. Same time. We're go. On board the LEM, Neil is intent on landing. Alarms or no alarms? You're always concerned when any kind of alarm comes on, but uh, my own feeling was that as long as everything was going well and looked right, I would be in favor of continuing no matter what the computer was complaining about. 2,000 There doesn't seem to be anywhere to set down. An abort suddenly seems very likely to have come this far only to abandon their prize now. Neil Armstrong. It was far and away the most complex part of the flight. The systems were very heavily loaded at that time. The unknowns were rampant. The, the systems in this mode had only been tested on Earth and never in the real environment. There were just a, a thousand things to worry about in the final descent. 999 of those 1,000 things are boulders the size of cars. It was a, a fairly steep slope and it was covered with very big rocks. There were some attractive areas half mile ahead or, or so, so that's where I, I went. But now there's another, even more serious problem. They didn't plan for the descent to take this long, and they are running out of fuel fast. Low level, low level. Well, normally, by the time he calls out low level, we have landed in training. And we're not even close to landing here. Back at her home in Houston, Joan Aldrin rises to her feet, sways unsteadily for a moment, and collapses onto the floor. She lays there for a few moments, absolutely overwhelmed. When she rises, she braces herself against the wall for support. 300 feet down, 3 half, 47 forward. Okay, have some fuel. Okay, it looks like a good area here. You may not have been able to make that last bit out. Right before Neil said he found an area he likes, Buzz informed him that they are down to 8% of their fuel. It's now or never. 11, we're coming down nicely. Neil just said he's got a good spot. Five percent, quantity light. That's how much fuel they have left. Hey, seventy-five feet. Start looking good. Down a half. Six forward. Sixty seconds. Sixty seconds. Sixty seconds. Mission control is telling Neil that if he's not on the ground in one minute, he has to abort the landing. 40 feet down, two and a half. Picking up some dust. 40 feet above the lunar surface, and Buzz is noticing that their descent engine is starting to disturb the lunar dust. Four forward. Four forward, drifting to the right level. 30. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Neil must put down within 30 seconds or abort the mission. There's a lot of concern about coming close to running out of fuel, but I, I did know that if I could have my speed stabilized and attitude stabilized, I could fall from a fairly good height, perhaps maybe 40 feet or more, and in the low lunar gravity, the gear would absorb that much fall. That was Neil Armstrong. 
Given that the moon's gravity is one-sixth of that on Earth, Neil is planning on letting the lander simply drop to the surface. Here's the thing about the LEM's legs. They were designed to get crushed. Inside the struts is a honeycomb structure that will compress on landing. Neil is betting that if they run out of fuel and aren't too high when it happens, they can simply fall in the moon's significantly lower gravity and the legs will absorb the impact. Uh, there are only three options that day. You're either going to land, you're going to abort, or you're going to crash. There's no more what happens, I'm not going to call it abort. The crew is close enough to the surface, I'm going to let them give it their best shot. Carlton was just ready to say 15 seconds. And then we hear the crew say, Contact right. Three of the four LEM footpads are equipped with nearly six foot long probes to alert the crew when contact with the surface is made. At least one of those probes has made contact. Okay, engine stop. With a jolt not unlike a passenger jet touching down on a runway, the LEM comes to a stop. The silence is deafening. The two men glance at each other in relief. The Eagle has only 45 seconds worth of fuel remaining. Because of avoiding hostile terrain, their descent has taken nearly 13 minutes longer than planned and burned roughly 530 unplanned pounds of fuel. Neil's heart rate is a thunderous 150 beats per minute, and they are approximately four miles from where they planned on landing. But they are on the moon. Outside, Neil sees something that takes his breath away. I was absolutely dumbfounded when I shut the rocket engine off and the particles were going out radially from the bottom of the engine belt all the way out over the horizon and instantaneously disappeared. There is so little atmospheric resistance on the moon that the lunar dust scattered by the LEM's exhaust raced away from the spacecraft at the speed of a bullet and traveled halfway around the moon before it finally settled. Buzz grabs Neil's hand and whispers, we made it. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. So long as the spacecraft is resting on the moon, it will no longer be referred to as the Eagle. Now it is Tranquility Base. I was so excited I couldn't get out Tranquility Base. It came out sort of like Roger Houston, Tranquility Base. And I believe that's true. It was a true statement. It was spontaneous, but it was true. I mean, we were, I was holding my breath, you know, because we were close. I don't think any of us breathed for that last 60 seconds. All across the Earth, time has stopped. 650 million people are glued to their televisions, making the moon landing the most watched television event in history. It's 2.17 p.m. in Houston, Texas. As her friends and family erupt into cheers, Joan Aldrin excuses herself and sneaks away into her husband's study, closing the door behind her. She wakes up several moments later, having passed out. A few feet away from her is a fallen matchbook. Though her limbs feel as if they are no longer in her control, she claws for the matchbook and curls her fingers around it, desperate for the feel of something real and tangible. She remains in this position for several minutes, regaining her composure before rising, smoothing out her dress, and rejoining the others in the living room. See, all smiles, she tells them. No more tears. But on CBS News, Walter Cronkite is in tears. U.S. soldiers in Vietnam crowd around handheld radios, even as mortars fall all around them. In New York City, the Yankees are playing the Washington Senators. The gathered fans erupt in cheers as there on the moon flashes on the scoreboard. 
and the game is paused while the crowd spontaneously begins to sing America the Beautiful. 10,000 people gathered in Central Park to watch the landing on giant screens erupt in ear-splitting applause. Thousands of travelers in airports and train stations begin applauding, and in the air, airplane passengers begin running up and down the aisles, shaking each other's hands. As a seven-year-old child watching Apollo 11 blast off at Cape Kennedy, I was dying to watch the landing on TV. But my dad wanted to drive back home to Michigan, and everybody on the interstate was pulling over to listen to the landing on the radio. I uh, was in Vietnam that day in July 1969. I was airborne in an F-100 Super Saver when someone came up on the emergency frequency and announced that the Eagle had landed. So the year in the month I was born, Sputnik launched, and I was nicknamed Sputnik for the first six years of my life. And then on my 12th birthday, Apollo 11 launched to head to the moon. Three days later, we were sitting in the living room watching Walter Cronkite and watching him walk on the moon. During the week of the landing, I was at summer camp, and the counselor in our cabin was kind of a cool guy. And I remember watching that on his little black and white TV with rabbit ears. Gosh, I was just a 19-year-old rookie protocol officer. My boss said, Werner von Braun needs an escort in the control center viewing room. And as young and inexperienced as I was at 19, I realized exactly what he was doing. I just stayed there until the end of the entire moonwalk. My father was an airman stationed at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha. The night of the landing, he's getting right home from a fellow airman who's African-American. They pull up to the bar, and my dad realized it was a African-American bar. And they walked in, and my dad kind of feel all eyes upon him, you know, being a six-foot-seven <laughs> white man. He said in that moment, when they said the words, you know, the eagle has landed, cheers erupted, and there was no race in that bar. It was just this group of Americans excited and amazed at what had just been accomplished. Well, it was the summer of 1969, and he'd just graduated from high school and was headed to college. I was with my boyfriend, who would later become my husband, and watched the landing together. As a young 18-year-old woman, it made me feel anything was possible and that I could do anything. It created an atmosphere of excitement and promise. And I must say that all the negativity in our culture today is so hard, and I have six grandchildren, and I want them to be full of hope. We could really use an Apollo 11 experience today. Remember in episode three, when we talked about John Hubolt, the engineer who insisted that lunar orbit rendezvous was the only way to get us to the moon? You may remember that one of the men who disagreed with him at the time was Werner von Braun, the designer of the Saturn V rocket. Well, today von Braun has invited Hubolt to mission control to witness Apollo 11's touchdown. As the viewing area erupts in cheers and applause, von Braun turns to Hubolt and says, thank you, John. It is a good idea. And uh, for the first time, we had the opportunity within the control team to uh, just take a deep breath and say, my God, today we just landed on the moon. Tranquility, uh, be advised, there are lots of smiling faces in this room and all over the world, over. Well, there are two of them up here. Right, that was a beautiful job, you guys. And don't forget one in the command module. That last voice was Michael Collins in orbit 60 miles above. You'd almost forgotten about him, hadn't you? On the Earthward side, he has the chatter of Mission Control and Tranquility Base to keep him company. But on the far side of the moon, for 48 minutes at a time, he is utterly cut off. Michael is well aware of what everyone is saying about him back on Earth. Michael Collins, the loneliest man in the universe. 
But despite the fact that he is experiencing the most profound solitude of any human being in history, he doesn't feel lonely. It's one of the questions I get asked a million times. God, you got so close to the moon and you didn't land. Doesn't that really bug you? It, it really does not. Uh, I honestly felt really privileged to be on Apollo 11, uh, uh, to have one of those three seats. I mean, there were guys in the astronaut office would have cut my throat ear to ear to have one of those three seats. Thank you. Just keep that uh, orbiting base ready for us up there now. Will do. Our recommendation at this point is planning at EVA starting at about 8 o'clock this evening, Houston time. Stand by. We'll give you some time to think about that. Tranquility Base, uh, Houston, we thought about it. We will support it. We're going at that time, over. The plan was for Neil and Buzz to begin a sleep period once they landed on the moon. But the astronauts are excited. They want to get out onto the moon's surface now. They can sleep later. And Houston concurs. But first, Buzz wants to acknowledge the enormity of the moment. Uh, Houston, Tranquility, over. Tranquility, Houston, go ahead. Roger, this is the LEM pilot. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask every person listening in, whoever, wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. Over. Buzz switches off the radio and takes a moment, in the midst of the maelstrom of history, to quiet himself. He opens two small plastic containers. One contains bread, the other contains wine. The Last Supper is the first meal on the moon. We are uh, beginning our EVA prep. Neil and Buzz struggle into their portable life support systems. These are the backpacks containing their breathable oxygen, water coolant, and communication systems. Tranquility Base, this is Houston. You are go for cabin depressurization. As the men equalize the pressure inside their cabin to match the lunar environment outside, Neil ponders what he's going to say when he first steps on the moon. He's had too much to concentrate on in the weeks and days leading up to the mission to come up with anything. He suddenly realizes that whatever he says is going to be recorded in every history book for time immemorial. No pressure. As the mission commander, Neil will be the first one out of the vehicle. Though Buzz actually petitioned NASA to be the first, the decision came down to feng shui. The LEM's hatch swings into the cabin and to the right blocking Buzz behind it until Neil climbs out of the way. Now comes the gymnastics. Now the hatch is coming open. Slowly, Neil begins making his way down the 10-foot ladder. His suit is so cumbersome that he can't even see his own feet. On the second rung, he yanks a D-ring, deploying the Mesa equipment and tool bay, as well as a television camera, which automatically begins broadcasting a signal back to Earth. Boy, look at those pictures. Wow. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. There's that foot coming down. There he is. There's a foot coming down the steps. If you've ever looked at pictures of Neil on the Lem ladder, you've noticed that the rungs stop about three and a half feet before the footbeds, forcing him to jump the rest of the distance down. This is because everyone anticipated that the legs would compress upon landing. Instead, Neil set the eagle down so gently that the legs never even budged. He's a victim of his own masterful flying. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The limb footbeds are only uh, depressed in the surface about one or two inches. I'm going to step off the limb now. Neil steps off with his left foot, places it on the surface, and bounces slightly to test it. So there's a foot on the moon, stepping down on the moon. 
If he's testing that first step, he must be stepping down on the moon at this point. And just like that, for the first time in history, a human has stepped foot on another world. Armstrong is on the moon. Neil Armstrong, 38-year-old American, standing on the surface of the moon on this July 20th, 1969. And now, the man known for his silences must find the perfect words. In Neil's living room back in Houston, his wife Janet tightly clutches their two small sons. Be descriptive now, Neil, she says aloud. At just shy of 10 p.m. Houston time, Neil Armstrong says, That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Neil later admitted that what he'd meant to say was the more consistent and grammatically correct, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. But in all of the excitement, he misspoke. Thankfully, the world understood his meaning just fine. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Chasing Life. Three out of four U.S. adults are considered overweight or have obesity. 75% of Americans. Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford. Our weight is one factor that plays a role in our health. But by itself, it doesn't give us the full story of who we are. We have to look at our full person. Listen to Chasing Life, streaming now on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs starting on March 13th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Surface is fine and battery. I can pick it up loosely with my toe. It does adhere in fine layers like uh, powdered charcoal to the uh, sides of my boot. Regolith, the fancy word for moon dust, is as fine as talcum powder, but as abrasive as sandpaper. It is electrically charged by solar radiation so that it sticks to every surface it comes in contact with. There seems to be no difficulty in moving around. It's even perhaps easier than the simulations of 1-6-G that uh, we performed uh, in various simulations on the ground. On Earth, during training, Neil, combined with his suit and backpack, weighed 350 pounds. Here in lunar gravity, he weighs less than 60. Neil is inside a wearable spacecraft that cost $100,000 to design and manufacture. It was made by Playtex. Yeah, the bra manufacturer. They know a thing or two about making strong, flexible, form-fitting clothing. The astronauts were protected from the moon's extremes of heat and cold, ultraviolet radiation, and micrometeorites by 21 layers fitted to neoprene bellows and steel aircraft wires, which allowed the men to bend in all the right places, 
Such joints are critical given that each suit is inflated to about 3.75 pounds per square inch of pure oxygen. Think about how firm a football is when it's fully inflated. And here's the coolest bit of all. Each suit was sewn by hand. Buzz lowers a Hasselblad camera down to Neil via a cable and pulley system rigged to the inside of the capsule. The astronauts have dubbed it the Brooklyn Clothesline. Neil is astonished by the view all around him and feels compelled to capture some images of the surrounding topography. If you've seen any of the pictures from the moon, you know that Neil took some extraordinary images. All the more impressive, since Neil doesn't have a viewfinder to look through. The camera is mounted to his chest. Oh, that looks beautiful from here, Neil. It has a stark beauty all its own. It's uh, like much of the high desert of uh, the United States. It's uh, different, but it's very pretty out here. With some pictures out of the way, Neil begins collecting some of the soil at his feet and scooping it into a bag. After filling it up, Neil tosses away a ring that had been keeping the bag open. In the one-sixth gravity, it sails far from him. Now, it's Aldrin's turn. Are you ready? All set. Buzz pauses on the ladder to make sure that the hatch doesn't close behind him. Even the slightest pressure difference between the inside and the outside would make the hatch profoundly difficult, if not impossible, to open again. Pickly good thought. That's our home for the next couple hours. We want to take good care of it. And now we have two Americans on the moon. Back in Houston, Joan Aldrin's body shudders as she vacillates between laughter and sobs. As her husband takes his first steps on the moon, she begins throwing kisses toward his flickering black and white image. Magnificent desolation is, well, a perfectly sublime way of describing the surface of the moon. But it's about as close as we're going to get to either of these guys getting emotional during their experience. They have a job to do, and philosophical musings aren't on their checklists. The first thing that is on Buzz's checklist is to get used to walking around in the lunar environment, which terrifies his son, Andy. I was convinced that Dad was going to trip and, you know, end up flat on his back like a dead bug in front of 600 million people and, most importantly, my 200 classmates. Those are the kind of things that were going through my head because I'm an 11-year-old kid. As Buzz continues to get used to his new environment, Neil opens the Mesa storage bay, housing their tools and equipment. Beside it is a metal plaque bolted to one of the eagle's legs. Underneath it says, Airmen from the planet Earth, first set foot upon the moon, July 1969, AP. It came in peace for all mankind. It's time to run some experiments. First off is the solar wind collector. Basically, a small sheet of aluminum foil attached to a telescoping pole and planted to face the sun. It will spend the duration of the mission soaking up solar wind particles, which will in turn provide clues for how our solar system was formed. Per his checklist, Neil takes a number of photos of Buzz at work. This is Apollo 11's only scandal. While Buzz was in possession of the camera, which admittedly was much less time than Neil, he didn't take a single picture of his mission commander we have no images of Neil Armstrong on the moon. That famous boot print? That's Buzz, too. Some conspiracy theorists believe that Buzz did this in retaliation for not being allowed to be the first one down the ladder, though it's far more likely just an oversight in the excitement of the moment. Next up, the men withdraw an American flag and erect it a short distance from the spacecraft. If you can pull that in, 
The top edge of the flag is braced by a crossbar, ensuring the stars and stripes are always visible on the moon. Without it, the flag would hang limp, as Earth flags do on windless days. Once the flag is up, Neil snaps one of the most famous images of the mission, Buzz saluting the flag and the camera. Just as the guys are getting ready to move on to their next item, they get a surprise call. Neil and Buzz, uh, the President of the United States is in his office now and would like to say a few words to you, over. That would be an honor. Uh, go ahead, Mr. President. Hello, Neil and Buzz. For every American, this has to be the proudest day of our lives. And for people all over the world, I am sure they too join with America in recognizing what an immense feat this is. Because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. Thank you, Mr. President. It's a great honor and privilege for us to be here representing not only the United States, but and a peace of all nations, and with interest and a curiosity and with a vision for the future. Time for some more experiments. As Neil gathers rocks, Buzz sets up two devices. The first is a seismic detector designed to allow scientists on Earth to monitor for moonquakes, volcanic eruptions, or meteorite impacts. Yes, the uh, passive seismometer has been deployed manually. Roger. Next up is the laser-ranging retro-refractor. Scientists on Earth can bounce lasers off of it, gathering precise measurements of the distance from the Earth to the moon. Laser reflector is installed and the bubble level and alignment appears to be good. While Buzz collects some regolith, Neil ventures a few hundred feet over to a crater, taking some time to marvel at his surroundings and snap a couple of pictures. This is the furthest that either of the astronauts will travel during the entire EVA. In our imaginations, we picture the Apollo 11 astronauts bounding euphorically across the lunar landscape, far from their spacecraft. However, the total area within which Neil and Buzz strayed would fit roughly within a major league baseball field. Buzz, this is Houston. You have approximately three minutes until you must commence your EVA termination activities. Over. Okay. Adios, amigo. Hey. Anything more before I head on up, Bruce? Negative. Head on up the ladder, Buzz. Okay, I'm heading on in. While Buzz makes his way up the ladder, Neil uses the regolith around his feet to fill in the empty spaces in several cases of moon rocks. Each case is vacuum-sealed, ensuring that when the boxes are later opened in special clean rooms back on Earth, the atmosphere inside the case is uncontaminated. Neil sends two cases up to Buzz via the Brooklyn clothesline. There's one last thing the men want to do. The comments you just heard are all that was said about their final task. They didn't inform the viewing public, nor do many in Mission Control know what's going on. From the open hatch, Buzz throws Neil a pouch which he places on the lunar soil. Inside is an Apollo 1 patch, honoring the three astronauts, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee, who perished in the fire two years earlier. A disc containing goodwill messages from 73 nations and a small gold olive branch representing their peaceful intent. These items are not controversial, but the pouch also contains two Soviet medals. The first commemorates Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space who died in a plane crash in 1968. The second is a medal for Vladimir Komarov, 
a cosmonaut who was killed when the parachutes on his Soyuz spacecraft failed to open after its re-entry. While these men were on the other side of the space race, as well as on the other side of America's Cold War with Soviet Russia, this was Apollo 11's way of honoring fallen comrades who didn't live long enough to see history made on the moon. There's also one other item the public wasn't aware of. Inside the Eagle, beside the astronauts during their flight to and from the moon, were wooden and cloth fragments from the original Wright Flyer, the first successful airplane flown by Wilbur and Orville Wright just 60 years earlier. His job on the moon done and his air supply running low, Neil re-enters the lunar module. Once inside, he and Buzz take one last look at the lunar surface where they spent the better part of three hours and then seal the hatch. Our train hatch is closed and latched and we're fine secure. Inside the spacecraft is a new smell from all the moon dust covering their gear. It smells like a spent firecracker. It reminds Buzz of wet ashes. As they struggle out of their bulky backpacks, Houston lets Michael in on the news. Columbia, Columbia, this is Houston. The crew of Tranquility Base is back inside their base, uh, repressurized. They're in the process of doffing the uh, pluses. Everything went beautifully. Over. Hallelujah. With all of those rocks and soil samples, the Eagle is now too heavy to lift off the lunar surface. To lighten the vessel, they must now open the hatch and toss out everything they no longer need, from their life support backpacks and boots to empty food packages and other trash, even a spare Hasselblad camera. Remember that seismometer that Buzz set up? Roger, Tranquility. We observed your equipment jettison on the TV, and the uh, passive seismic experiment recorded shocks when uh, each plus hit the surface over. You can't get away with anything anymore, can you? No, indeed. And we'd like to say from all of us down here in Houston, and really from all of us in all the countries and uh, in the entire world, we think that you've done a magnificent job up there today. Over. Thank you very much. It's been a long day. Yes, indeed. Get some rest there and uh, have at it tomorrow. Neil and Buzz have now been up for 21 hours. Famished, they eat some cocktail sausages and try to find a place to sleep. The eagle doesn't have beds. Neil curls up on the cover of the ascent engine while Buzz chooses the floor. Though they pull blinds down over the windows, a lot of light still streams into the capsule, enough to allow Buzz to see that one of the circuit breaker switches on the control panel was broken off while they struggled out of their backpacks. The switch sends electrical power to the ascent engine that they're going to need to get off the moon in the morning. Without that switch, they're not going anywhere. That, combined with a far more frigid spacecraft than either of them anticipated, guarantees they will get next to no sleep tonight. The race for the moon has been won. The exploration of space has just begun. Day five is over. Day six, July 21st, begins with our next episode. The day Apollo 11 is to leave the moon. But because the lunar module is crippled, the return home is now in doubt. Only one half of President Kennedy's pledge has been fulfilled. Yes, the United States has landed men on the moon before the end of the decade. But returning them safely back to Earth may be impossible. This podcast is a production of iHeartRadio and Tradecraft Studios. Executive Producers, Ash Sorohia and Scott Bernstein. In association with High Five Content and Executive Producer, Andrew Jacobs. 
amazing research and production assistance by associate producers Brianne Shosaw and Natalie Robamed. Our incredible editor is Bill Lance. Original music by Henry Benoit. Special thanks to Andy Aldrin and Mission Control's Steve Bales. Thanks to Mike Dawson, Jeff McCarthy, Terry Guevara, Greg Simpson, Adam Howard, John Rantel, Paul Olmsted, and Margaret Rowland for sharing their moon landing memories. Special thanks to everyone at NASA who made this podcast possible, especially the incredible technological wizardry of consulting producer Ben Feist, who's responsible for organizing and cleaning the 11,000 hours of mission audio you're hearing selections from in this podcast. Special thanks also to consultant Gina Delvac. Licensing rights and clearances by Deborah Correa. This is a brand new podcast, and we're so excited to be sharing it with you. Help us spread it far and wide. Tell your friends, leave ratings and reviews, and chat about it on social media. Our hashtag is 9DIJ. We would love to hear what you think. New episodes come out each week, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brandon Phipps. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next episode. There's plenty to celebrate in March, and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs starting on March 13th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.